This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts. And we today have a special edition of Workers' Comp Matters. We are at the Intercontinental Hotel in Boston, where we have hosted uh, with the American Bar Association tips and labor and employment law committees, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, and the Massachusetts Bar Association, Mass Academy of Trial Attorneys, and the Department of Industrial Accidents, uh, hosted a 100-year centennial commemoration of the passage of the first workers' compensation laws in the United States in 1911. And we had attorneys, administrators, judges, claims professionals, insurance professionals from all over the country and all over the world gather in Boston where we were able to reflect back on the very unique history of workers' compensation in this country, and the profound effect it had on the lives of injured workers and their families as a remedy for on-the-job injuries to compensate people for their losses was promulgated and instituted just about 100 years ago with a lot of controversy because, as all of you know who are familiar with workers' compensation, it was then called and still is the great compromise or the great trade-off. Workers gave up their rights for civil remedies as a result of on-the-job injuries in exchange for a predictable and uh, limited stream of benefits for their injuries. And over the last 100 years, workers' compensation has evolved, changed, been the subject of reform, deconstruction, reduction of benefits, changes in medical costs, cost-shifting issues, and we were able to come together socially, but with a purpose uh, to learn about the history of workers' comp and come away from uh, these proceedings with perhaps some renewed dedication as we continue our practice of representing our clients, whether they're injured workers or employers or insurers, uh, with a better understanding of the system and how the system came to be where it is and what we need to do to maintain the system in a healthy, fair, and efficient form. And one of our major sponsors for uh, this event, and uh, some folks we really could not do without, was um, an organization that I'm proud to be a member. It is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, otherwise known as Willig. And today, I'd like to introduce my guest, Andrew J. Reinhardt. Andy's from the firm of Reinhardt and Harper in Richmond, Virginia. Andy and his firm specialize in the handling of workers' compensation, personal injury, social security disability cases. Andy's a member of the Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia bars. He's active in many associations, including the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association and, of course, Willig, where he currently serves as president. Andy, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. Very nice summary, by the way, on the last 100 years of workers' comp. We were chatting earlier uh, about um, issues that we have to deal with. And, of course, Willig is a specialty bar in that um, your membership, our membership, are claimant attorneys. Tell us a little bit about Willig, how it came to be formed, and its mission. 
Willig uh, was started about 1997 with a recognition amongst trial attorneys that workers' comp is somewhat unique. And our interests uh, are unique, and we ought to have our own organization. It has grown from a small group of attorneys to now well over 800 lawyers, uh, members around the country, all 50 states. And of course, as you know, we have a tremendous executive director, Jennifer Comer, significant staff, including our research director. And, you know, uh, when you just mentioned the necessity of having a group of dedicated workers' comp attorneys on the claimant side, I could only think back to the lessons we learned yesterday about uh, an organization that we both belong to, now known as AAJ, who used to be known as ATLA. And the unique history of ATLA, it originally started as an organization known as NACA, 1946, 1947. And NACA was the National Association of compensation claimant attorneys. And back 60 years ago, there was a recognition by our predecessors, Sam Horovitz in particular, Ben Marcus of Detroit, that there was a need for a national organization of claimant attorneys, not only to serve our clients, but to educate ourselves about what's going on in the other states. And NACA's mission, unfortunately, was absorbed into ATLA. And ATLA now is a much broader based uh, uh, an AAJ where they represent uh, plaintiffs in civil litigation and uh, other matters. And Willig has sort of taken up that that gap of something for workers' comp. Uh, you know, those of us who handle comp, and I handle comp in Massachusetts, the first question my colleagues will say is, what was Willig, what would a NACA, what would a national organization of workers' comp do for me? Massachusetts has its own law. Virginia has its own law. There's 50 states, 50 laws. What is the benefits of uh, a national organization, and what are the issues that would be of benefit well, to us? Well, sev- there's several, uh, and I'll talk first, if I could, for a minute about uh, an area of law called, which I call multi-state comp, which has three parts. Part one of multi-state comp is it's very common today for someone to have a work injury where they have a choice between one of several states to file their workers' comp claims. Because there may be an accident in one state, the company is located someplace else, and there may be sufficient contacts with several states. In that instance, uh, it's incumbent upon the workers' comp attorney to help his client select the state to file the claims and to do a benefit comparison. The only way to do that is to be able to draw on a large group of attorneys, such as we have in all the 50 states, by virtue of our directory, our listserv, our contacts, our CLE programs, and so forth, that we have this cadre of attorneys all around the country who we know each other, can call on each other to do a benefit comparison and decide where to file a, a, a comp claim, what state to file it in. And that's part one of, uh, of the multi-state issues. There is a part two, if I could. Part two of multi-state comp is that uh, unbeknownst to many attorneys who think of themselves as just state comp attorneys, is that you often have the option of filing either simultaneously or consecutively. If you have a choice of one of several states, the law amongst almost all states, with very few exceptions, is that you can actually file in multiple states for one work accident. It might be, for instance, in Massachusetts, you can be compensated for a permanent partial benefit that's not allowed in Virginia. So I might file first in Massachusetts and then file in Virginia or vice versa, depending upon our benefit comparison in terms of what might be available. The general rule of thumb is that you can't get a double recovery between states. 
So you're not going to get the same benefit twice. And the typical rule of thumb is that whatever state you're currently filing in and pursuing a claim is not going to allow you to get a total of benefits that that is more than the statutory maximum for that state. But you can't know without being able to contact other attorneys around the country about Part 2. And there's a Part 3, if I may. Go right ahead. Uh, Part three of multi-state comp is this. It's incredibly important and something that I will I will venture to say that many state comp attorneys and many personal injury attorneys are not aware of, and that is this, that if you have an accident that is both uh, giving you a worker's comp and a personal injury claim. Third-party case. A third-party case. Then in that instance, the law of reimbursement is determined by the comp case. In other words, Whatever may have to be paid back to the comp carrier as a result of a personal injury recovery is a hundred and total percent the function of the state comp law where you have chosen to pursue the claim. That state will determine the reimbursement formula. It will determine, for instance, whether or not fault on the part of the employer, if if it exists, will allow for reimbursement. It will determine whether uh, attorney's fees. Uh, have to be shared by the workers' comp attorney. It will determine what the ultimate uh, workers' comp uh, recovery is after settling the personal injury case. In some states, you cannot recover, the workers' comp insurance company cannot recover pain and suffering or consortium or punitive damages uh, as part of the comp lien. Uh, In some states, the lien will attach to a UMUIM policy. In other states, the workers' comp laws would not allow that. A medical malpractice claim or wrongful death claim might arouse, arise out of that same accident. In some states, the workers' comp lien will not attach to a medical malpractice or death claim. There's even a couple of states, one in particular, where if there's not a total and full recovery in a personal injury case, there's no lien at all. So there are numerous instances where your choice of where to file the comp claim is not dictated so much by the benefit comparison that we first start with, or the decision to file in one or more states, but when there's a personal injury case that also arises out of that accident, what the total recovery will be because of the lien law that uh, that you now have based on the workers' comp state that you've chosen. And just to be clear, uh, the situations where there might be more than one jurisdiction are limited. It's you, at least the rule in Massachusetts, and I'd be interested to know the rule in Virginia. And I realize every state has its own rules. Massachusetts will have jurisdiction either if the injury occurred here or if the contract of hire occurred here. So when I get multi-jurisdictional cases, they're most frequently with our border states, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York. So uh, if I have a client who lives in Massachusetts and he was hired by an employer in Massachusetts and travels over the border into New Hampshire where he has his injury, he has a choice between Massachusetts because the contract of hire was here or New Hampshire where the injury was here. And that's when I have to do this analysis. What are the benefits in New Hampshire? What are the benefits in Massachusetts? What are the third party recovery rights if there is a third party in Mass? And if I don't know the New Hampshire law or the Vermont law or the New York law, um, I, 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 I look to the Willig directory. Exactly right, Alan. The, the sufficient context that's necessary to be able to pursue the claim in that given state that you might be looking at is a function of that state's law, which is why it's critical that you have the ability to contact lawyers around the country who are expert in workers' compensation. 
And I, I tell you, you know, there are not a lot of cases that fall into this category, but if you do this as a regular part of your practice, you're going to run into it sooner or later. I had one case where we had, uh, it was referred to me by a lawyer in Maine, and the injury occurred in Massachusetts, but the, but the state of Maine had jurisdiction. There was a third-party case, and in Massachusetts, we have what's known as double compensation if there is employer serious misconduct. In Maine, it was, I can't remember if it was either the double comp aspect or the third party aspect of the benefit level. There were reasons why the case should be in Maine for some part of the case, and there were reasons why it should be in Massachusetts for other parts of the case. And we literally spent a lot of time analyzing both statutes with the benefit of Maine counsel and found that it was beneficial in the long run for my client, the spouse, it was a, it was a fatality. Uh, for her to bring her claim in mass. And, uh, you know, if, if I at least didn't understand the concept of multi-jurisdictional workers' comp claims and the impact not only in the, the comp case itself, but the third party or double comp or the punitive part of the case, um, I or the main attorney could have done a disservice to the client. Exactly right, Alan. Yeah. All right. Aside from that, and those are relatively limited uh, uh, cases, but nevertheless, they're out there. Um, a lot's been happening nationally that will affect state workers' comp practitioners and the practice of comp. Uh, I know that Willig is on top of this. Um, there's been some interesting things happening in Washington, D.C. lately, and perhaps you can update us on what's going on. I'd be delighted to, yes. Uh, as you know, Willig is very active in state legislative matters all around the country and also federal. Currently, uh, what's of note is that we recently had congressional hearings in Washington, D.C., and there were several folks who testified. We have a a, a very solid congressional record, which you can uh, locate at WILG.org and scroll down the bottom of the first page and find the link to the congressional record. What you will find is that the testimony in those congressional hearings, which was a culmination of a great deal of work of Willig members and other folks in Washington, that we have established without question that in 1972, there was a National Commission on Workers' Compensation, uh, which uh, which raised significant question as to the quid pro quo or bargain that you mentioned earlier struck with employers such that it was suggested something needs to be done before Washington gets involved. Benefits need to be increased. And they were. We had a honeymoon period of about 18 years where around the country benefits increased. However, starting in about 1990 and during a period of time when we probably had the greatest prosperity in this country's financial history, it was a trend in benefits downward throughout the country. Terrible deforms in workers' compensation, significant decrease in benefits, and decrease in the number of cases that would be covered by workers' compensation. That's been clearly established by many studies, and now we have a correct congressional record to prove that, which is critical when uh, state compensation attorneys and their sections are going before their state legislatures to talk about workers' comp benefits. We also, part of that hearing, talked about the AMA guides. I know you're familiar with the fact that many states use the, in federal Workers' comp claims use the AMA guides as a determination of various benefits. Unfortunately, what was established at these hearings is that there's no evidentiary basis whatsoever for the AMA guides. Each set of guides, now the sixth edition, is less favorable than the, than the one before it. That uh, there's there's no known basis whatsoever for the formulas in the guides 
the percentages never add up to 100%, no matter how disabled a person is, even if they're a quadriplegic that, that has no ability to even uh, do anything normal in their daily life, let alone at work. And, and yet, these formulas and AMA guides are used as a basis for determining whether or not someone can get compensation and how much compensation they get, which was never intended by the guides. Uh, and um, Congressman Miller has written a uh, request to uh, the AMA to explain the basis for the guides, whether there's any logic or evidence to support it, how they were arrived at. And of course, we have no response whatsoever. So this congressional record is critical for states that are fighting off uh, the latest edition of the guides or questioning the guides, uh, generally speaking. Another matter. Uh, you know, we're gonna, at this point, we're going to take a quick break uh, and we will get back to the other matter about the guides. Uh, those of you who do listen to Legal Talk Network, in our archive, uh, we did a show some time ago uh, specifically related to the guides. And it was pretty much a point-counterpoint. Uh, we had Dr. Chris Brigham, who was the uh, chief editor of the sixth edition. And we had attorney Todd McFarren, a uh, California attorney who is probably one of the leading vocal critics who can yes, very well articulate the criticisms of the guides. And it was a uh, very informative, uh, no matter what side of this debate you're on, uh, you got to hear both sides. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with attorney Andy Reinhardt. Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says our podcast feeds. Now you'll be all set. Want to get CLE credit for the show you just listened to? Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and look for the words engage your brain. Click there and you can choose what you need for credits and listen to our shows at the same time. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. Uh... Again, with me today is Attorney Andy Reinhardt. Andy, we were talking about what's been happening in Washington, D.C. We've uh, got some congressional hearings uh, regarding uh, various issues, including the uh, AMA guides. Uh, there was one more uh, item you wanted to discuss. Let's, uh, let's discuss that. Well, actually, two. One is, as you know, we're actively involved with Medicare secondary payer litigation to Another try to issue. eliminate or reduce the, the burden that's been imposed by our dealings with CMS. And so... Uh, stay tuned. We're very active in Washington. Also, related to the reduction in benefits around the country, uh, we have asked the General Accounting Office to do a study to explain what ha what has basically happened with all these injured workers who are denied their benefits or they've been reduced because it's our feeling that their burden has been shifted to the government or, in effect, the taxpayers to save the insurance company's money. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in, in today's newspaper, uh, right now, as, as we're speaking and we're recording this show, there's a major budget crisis going on in D.C. with a very real threat. Uh, there, there will either be a shutdown, which obviously and hopefully would be temporary, uh, but some layoffs and furloughs. And that would include CMS. And there is some very legitimate concern. It's already a tremendous delay from putting in your application for uh, Medicare set aside um, 
you know, approval to getting it, uh, you know, anywhere from 120 or more days. And the fear is that with any cutbacks in that or any shutdown of the federal government, that, that those delays can, can go much longer. And we all know the impact both to our clients and the insurance companies that are paying these cases, uh, that settlement needs to be done quickly, not over a span of four to six months, especially if benefits are being paid. Um, you know, you mentioned the 90s was a period of deform uh, following the honeymoon period that uh, was generated by the National Commission's recommendations that went into effect from the mid to late 70s up through the 80s. Are we done with that, or are there things going on in the different states that we need to be aware of? Unfortunately not, and I suppose this is one of the reasons Willig has become more relevant than ever. What we have found is that there are a number of issues that are recurring. The National Insurance Lobby, if I can call it that, uh, has gone from state to state and tried to impose their will on various state legislatures. And routinely what they tell the various state legislatures is what they believe the facts are, what the realities are. Uh, and unfortunately, they are a national lobby. Where does the state workers' comp section or attorney turn when they're in the state legislature? And Willig is that resource. In fact, we have told workers' comp groups around the country, call on us. We're now receiving about three to five calls per week. They're going to our executive, Jennifer Comer, who's calling on a research director, and also many people within the, within the organization to help. For instance, the issue of employee misclassification, calling someone independent contractors that really are not. This is going on in at least six or seven states. We've, we've had that here. The yeah. AMA, I know you have. We've had that here. And the AMA guides, which I've mentioned before, is a battle in six or seven states. Uh, one of the, the uh, common tactics of the insurance industry to reduce benefits is to either reduce medical fees, so medical un, unfavorable medical fee schedules are common, uh, issues as well as attorney's fees caps. So we've got five or six states where attorney's fees caps, several states with uh, unfavorable fee schedules, also undocumented workers. Many states will deny undocumented workers benefits for injury or death, even though the employer knows that those folks are undocumented workers. And I'll mention that undocumented workers, whatever you may think of them, tend to be those folks today who take the most difficult, most dangerous, most life-threatening jobs of anyone in our workers' comp industry. And I have to think back to 146 mostly women 100 years ago that were working in the garment district in New York. And children. And, and children. They were 14, 14 years and up. Working 60 hours a week, the fire broke out, out the windows or they perished from the flames. And you'd think that we would have learned, well, we have learned a lot in 100 years, but here we are today, 2011, discussing failing to protect these most vulnerable people in our society. And related to that, if I can mention this, and this is an issue that we're seeing, there's a great attack on organized labor. People forget that child labor laws, workers' comp laws, uh, work safety regulations, uh, and Min all minimum wage, minimum 40 wage. hour work week, we could go, you All right. of our efforts to avoid the tragedies of shirt waste and beyond are the result of and benefit that we've gained from organized labor. And yet today, many statutes around the country, and I can point to some states in particular that you see in the press every day, are attempting to annihilate labor, not just do business with, not just argue, but annihilate organized labor. So there, there are numerous attempts to reduce benefits, numerous attempts around the country in various states. We see the same issues come up time and again. Now, how does a state 
uh, workers' comp section. How do folks uh, fight that battle? Call on us. And tell us how we can get in touch with you. You call, uh, contact uh, WILG.org. Email us. We have all of our contact information on our website. Jennifer Comer is our first point of contact for legislative matters. She will call on me, other folks in our executive committee, and our research director, WILG.org. We will join your battle, and we will all also ask you to join us. We are 800 strong and growing, and more than that, and growing in all the 50 states. And the key is this, Alan, I think, and you know this because of your practice for many years, that we will rise and fall together. We are all in this together. You may be a state workers' comp lawyer. You may be a longshore attorney. You may have a workers' comp specialty. But ultimately, all of us will rise and fall together. We must help each other. We must join in the fight. And we can do that. And we're, we're on the ready. So please contact us. And I, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity. And this, this is an unusual, obviously, the 100th year anniversary. I'm very humbled to be president of Willing this year. And I, and I make this plea to workers' comp lawyers around the country and others who may be listening, recognize the importance of, of workers because workers' comp claimants' attorneys are representing your spouses, your children, your neighbors, and you. And I certainly hope when the time comes that you call your workers' comp attorney that uh, he or she will not be telling you that the grand bargain uh, does not exist in a favorable way in your home state. Andy, thank you so much for those words. Thank you for being here, and thank you for everything you and Willie does. Um, we hope you enjoyed this show on Workers' Comp Matters. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I hope you go out and make it a day that matters. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.